0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a
1: short message about our ministry.
0: Hey, this is uh, Paul. I'm here today with Professor Douglas Campbell, um, who has, uh, to my understanding, has written one of the most extensive uh, works on Romans, which I've used. I've had him on, we, we did an interview previously, and we're going to try not to repeat. Uh, let me go ahead and have uh, Matt and John explain who they are, so you can kind of get a, an idea of who your questioners are. I was going to say inquisition <laughs> is, word. is yeah. but that's the they're not, they're nicer than that. I, I know.
1: Uh, yeah,
2: that's the wrong word. <laughs> hello, uh, hello, Douglas. My name is Matt Welch. Hey man! Thank you so much for joining us. We we can we couldn't be more excited to to have this conversation with you. Um, and we want to be respectful of your time. What do you have a hard stop? <laughs> no, not really. Oh, so we can just because we can talk all night. You know, worth the all of you know. Believe
1: me. Yeah. Okay. So. I usually have a beer at five o'clock. Okay. I've already had several. So, I mean, I'm, no. I'm yeah.
3: Kidding. My wife said it
1: might help some of my podcasts, but
2: we'll see. We've been doing drinks oh. over
3: Zoom.
1: No, that's, I don't, funny.
2: I doubt that you have had time to, to listen to any of our stuff, but over the past couple um, yep. months now, I think it's been nice uh, that we've been having this conversation. Um, did you say you have had a chance to listen to anything? I I, I had dipped in and out a bit. Yeah. I'm embarrassed. Now. Yes, now
3: I'm ashamed. Yes, I have questions for you. Yeah, you're probably thinking the no. main questions probably. I thought these guys were supposed to be talking about my book. And they just keep talking about David yeah, Billy right. Hart or about Bernard Lonergan. Doran, yeah. No, that, that, yeah, Doran, yeah. That, I like Doran. That
1: thought crossed my mind,
3: yeah. yeah no, we, we, we've we
2: laughed about that several times. It's like, if Douglas ever does listen to this, he's going to go, what the heck? They're supposed to be doing, you know, It's a false, it's a false flag operation. That's right.
1: Yeah. It's the combination it, of it all. You're trying it's to like, draw my fans in. And and <laughs> I I have to tell you, there's about nine of them.
3: well you can blame paul for that he's the one naming all this stuff
1: there you go i I think we're on the same page i I concluded that we're on the same page which i have to tell you guys was a really nice thing to conclude so uh, yeah good i appreciate i appreciate what you do
2: thank you thank you and and by the way that's a rule of thumb around here if anything goes (laughs) wrong feel free to just blame paul that's what we do (laughs) yeah See, we we talked to you a while back and it was just a fun conversation and we all went out and, and started reading your stuff and I'll be honest I have um I don't have Pauline Dogmatics yet and so we're gonna just kind of launch in and, and ask about uh, you know why you wrote it and what your goals are and things like that for so it's like I'm I'm aware of what you're doing through other people but I'm, I'm looking forward to today's conversation and so I'm right now studying to be a, a chaplain I'd like to do prison chaplaincy oh okay. great. Um, yeah, I actually listened to your podcast the other day on – or yesterday on uh, crackers and grapes. Uh, and you were telling uh-huh. the story of mm-hmm. – uh, I think it was a friend who had a son or something who committed a crime and um, – friend of our sons. Okay, okay. Yeah, and I was like, man, that's because it makes all this stuff much more real, right? I mean, it's like real-world application type stuff, you know, once you – Start going into the jails and talking to these guys, and so that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm mainly just been reading the the fathers, I'm, I'm in the process of a catechumen in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and so I've been doing a lot with the origin of, of Alexandria, a lot of stuff with their family heart. And that's that's me, I'm Matt. And so Where are you, Matt? I'm in
3: Indianapolis. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yep. So I am uh, an Episcopal priest, okay. in Dallas, Texas. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah, you're down south. I knew that. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. God's own state, you said.
3: That's, Is that's that right? right? Yeah, I'm not a native Texan, yeah. so you know, I say all that a bit tongue in cheek. We need we need, we need to we need to, we need to <laughs> actually I think that. It was yeah. uh, maybe a different podcast I heard you <laughs> on, and then it was about the same time that the Paul book came out, the Pauline dogmatics, and so I went, I rushed out and bought it the next day, and then after reading it, I I haven't read all of it. I've read a lot of it. Uh, I called Paul up and I said, hey, I need to talk about this book. And so I also let your book be sort of the structure for a virtual Bible study that I've been doing here at church that's gotten good response, too. So I've made a lot of use out of your stuff, and I'm very, very thankful for your contribution. Oh, thank you. That's
1: great. Thank you for rushing out and
3: buying the book. Yeah, <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah. Like, Did you,
1: was there a lineup or, or were you able just to walk in straight away? and just? Oh, get Amazon,
3: it? Amazon, you know, a, yeah. a, perhaps a virtual line. It
1: wasn't like <laughs> only two left in stock. It was like there are 5,000 in stock.
3: <laughs> well, you know, I, it's, it was kind of a funny thing about this book is that it reads so well, it could be considered maybe popular level, right? But it's like 800 pages long. And I don't think people read books. Ah, uh, you picked up on that. <laughs> you noticed yes. that. You crashed, you crashed and burned, right? Well, I, I mean, I didn't actually. Uh, so I read the whole first section, and then I read the whole last section, and now I'm dipping into the middle section.
1: You, you skipped you skip the uh, church.
3: Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I put up with the church so often. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Yeah, yeah.
0: I would guess that any that we have covered your material more thoroughly than anyone. I think we've I've put out something like sixteen podcasts, but they're
3: all about Doran and Hart. That's right. They're not really about me.
0: But you're so such a huge personality that you everything we talk about it's sort of encompassed by the work you've done. Oh, thank
1: you. Yeah, superficially, but broadly. <laughs> well,
0: today we can bring it on home, I
2: think, a little bit, you know, and, and kind of rein it all in and hopefully make sense uh, not only in this podcast but in a future podcast. Now that we have you here and we can kind of have this conversation, we can kind of maybe reframe everything that we've done and do a couple more on what we've learned uh, today.
0: Let's do it. Yeah, go for it. Doug, can you tell us just a, a little bit about specifically your journey in regards to the church uh sure yeah um are you asking me for my personal journey or is that where we're going with this as against what i think it is yes i what i (laughs) what i'm the the issue the the discussion that's come up uh we we have wandered a bit uh as to specifically how you would identify yourself and uh, how that came about, specifically in regards to what particular group you, you might uh, locate yourself with. Mm. Sure,
1: sure. Well, I don't really, It's the short answer, because I'm a bit of a mongrel. Um, so I was a convert. Um, so I'm a New Zealander, which is very, very secular. And I went to church schools and stuff but uh, none of it I don't I didn't I never met a single believer um, during my ten years of institutional school uh, apart from the chaplain and I wasn't sure about him Wow um, which is a shame because I really wanted to know about God that was Anglican um, Episcopalian in us terms I, I converted as a narcissistic depressed uh, teenager at a rock concert uh, when I was sort of very end of my 19th year, walked the aisle, kind of a mistake, long story there. Um, And I ended up in a church being catechized intensively, and it was sort of a Holy Trinity, Brompton, David Watson type of church. So soft evangelical, British evangelical, and charismatic. And that gave me a fabulous foundation. Then I started on my graduate studies, and we were looking for sort of the spirit To be at work in the church, we ended up in a a Pentecostal church, but it was actually quite staid. It was one of the original four square Pentecostal churches in Mm. Toronto. So they were under the third generation. They were kind of like a straight-laced evangelical church. But um, since then, we have dipped our toes into vineyard churches, community churches, um, Anglican churches, Reformed churches. And now that I'm in North Carolina... We've been involved with church planting as an offshoot, kind of an edgy offshoot of the local Methodist conference. That's been our latest thing. Yeah, that's just unfolding as we speak. We're setting up, trying to set up sort of a bivocational model for ministry, and mm-hmm. really working on a network of house churches. And so I'm, I'm looking to operationalize Pauline dogmatics. So we'll see, we'll see how that goes.
0: There you go. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, it's it's a great question because, you know, you want to situate people, and, and I hope what I said was helpful, but um, I'm mindful of how Jensen starts off lamenting how theology is, is often done from these locations, and, and, and one of the things we probably need to get out in front of is, if you're doing good theology, you're talking about Jesus Christ, and he's involved with the entirety of the body, so you are doing it from a broken place, but also a place where you affirm that we are all one, despite our distinctions, oh, right? Okay.
3: Truly ecumenical. That's, it reminds I've got a friend who always parrots out this quote. It's by some obscure Anglo-Catholic type in the Church of England from around the 1950s. But he would say, don't tell them you're C of E, tell them you're for Jesus there you go that's, that captures the
1: spirit. <laughs> that's right well now I'm not ordained so I have some flexibility mm-hmm. there that other people don't so um I make the most of that yeah just I'm just i I'm just
0: an ordinary Bible believing Christian there you go there you go sounds like a good place to be yeah that's the I don't yeah. know are you familiar yeah. at all that's right. uh Douglas with the uh, restoration movement a little bit not personally. In the Christian churches, <laughs> Churches of Christ. Just a little bit, yeah. Not not personally. It's sort of a rural Midwest, uh, was a 19th century movement, but that was your statement there. I just assumed you were duplicating the statement that comes out of the Christian churches. I'm just a Christian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that, like, that yeah, was. yeah. It can be made duplicitously.
1: I, can I just add in too? Sorry to distract, <laughs> but... Um, you know, the latest connection, ecclesial connection, that I'm very excited about is with a number of Messianic Jewish friends. Wow. Um, and we, we tend to uh, overlook that dimension, but I actually think it needs to be brought into visibility quite strongly. We need to affirm and support our Messianic Jewish Brothers and sisters and their endeavours, um, you know, and, and some of that is complex. There, there, that's a complex chessboard in in and of itself. But I have to say, I've been really blessed by by those friendships.
2: <laughs> well, Douglas, I want to thank you again for for joining us. It's uh, it's our pleasure, and we over the past um, couple months been trying to. Uh, sort of place your work in dialogue with people like Soren Kierkegaard, David Bentley Hart, Bernard Lonergan, and other people. Um, And so for our listeners, could you just maybe explain for us, maybe kind of a two-part question. First of all, why did you write Pauline Dogmatics, and what is your goal for the reception of the book?
1: Why do I do what I do? And the answer is, I don't know. (laughs) 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 Yeah, thank you. Um, So I... Uh, have written these other books about Lutheranism and the Lutheran reading that I guess we'll come to. And uh, that that took a lot of effort. <laughs> but uh, the big hit on kind of the Lutheran reading, if we can call it that, and I know that's a tricky term, both in terms of biography and theology, that was a ground-clearing exercise. So once you've, once you've done that to your satisfaction, the question is, okay, so what is what is Paul's gospel really about if we're actually processing him through, let's say, more orthodox spectacles. Um, So I'm asking that question, I'm at Duke, I'm teaching leaders in the church, young, usually young, ministers in formation. And I realized what I wanted to do was try and start them off with the right theological moves so they didn't lose their way, but take them through to an understanding of the church that was dynamic enough to challenge them and open up their local contexts for them. So I wanted to kind of equip them with a practical theology. So instead of going from God to eschatology, I wanted to say, how do we start off with God and get into a prison? And how do we do that in one semester? Yeah, so Pauline Dogmatics is the result. (laughs) That's all the things I've learned at Duke. Oh,
0: So you are you're using it as a textbook. I do use it
1: as a textbook. Yeah. 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 It's, it's I, I worry it's a slightly narcissistic phenomenon, but I, I I believe what I believe is true, like most people. So what I tell them is this is what I think is true. Um, and I'm gonna obviously I'm gonna stand up for what I think is true. Hmm. Uh, it's not that truth is a relative thing, but I actually can't do anything other than that. So, you know, I invite you to enter into that journey if it doesn't work for you. That's fine. No hard feelings.
0: I always liked. Uh, I always use Stanley Harwis's line, and that is, I'd tell my uh, first year students that uh, actually my goal is to indoctrinate you and to have you think like I think. If that were not the case, then I would not have a very high view of what I think. That's right. <laughs> so not narcissistic at all. Yeah, that's right. My my goal and. He, My goal, Douglas, is to make my
1: students like me. (laughs) Well, he's right. I mean, he's right. It's typically candid. Love that guy. He's a huge influence on on me and on the book, obviously. He's, He's the bridge from Bart on Revelation and God and Jesus and election into the church. So I'm very thankful that he taught me about all that.
0: I'd I'd say that you know in in reading the book I was that was one of the things I think John and I mm. both noticed and were quite appreciative of is that it, you're so transparent in your sources and you give credit and so it makes it it makes it a very a doubly useful book in that we can trace down and so you're crediting Howells I I think is
3: yeah yeah Howells is part two yeah I found the footnotes super interesting.
1: Oh, good. Good. Well, that's what they're for, of course. But um, Mm -hmm. we festoon them with so many details and flourishes, they start doing what they're really meant to do, which is to help the reader to find out Mm -hmm. what else they could read. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty upfront about the fact that I've learned all the good stuff I've learned really from other people. I, I don't want to claim very much originality at all. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. So the best thing I can do is to point my readers to the giants in due course and, and the really big names for the Book of Bart and then how us.: right. And, you know, another presence who's crucial is my good friend Alan Torrance who channeled me to Bart, but also his uncle and his father um, and some of his friends and his own work, very gifted theologian. So most of what I learned up front I learned from Alan yeah, but Alan's hard to understand because he speaks five languages at the same time. You think Bentley Hard is tough. Alan is really tough. So I I, I popularize him.
3: <laughs> I'm the angles to his marks.
0: <laughs>
3: a question we kind of tossed around I'm sorry it's not on the sheet, but it, you're a New Testament professor, right? Yeah. But you're what I appreciate, and what I find interesting because I don't think this happens enough, yeah. is you're taking New Testament studies or what's you know called biblical studies and cordoned off, and you're putting it in conversation with all of these theologians. Right. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Which is which is really what that's the interesting conversation to have, isn't it? And mm-hmm. it, it's it's the one that really helps the church. So I enjoy New Testament studies, but the technical stuff doesn't always have a huge payoff for the people in the pew and the disciplinary bifurcation uh, kind of imposed, insinuated to the discipline by uh, the modern university, I think is a real problem. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually don't think there's a lot of point in getting excited about the New Testament, unless it's a theological enterprise, uh, because it's talking about God and a certain sort of God. Mm -hmm. So once you get into that area, um, there are a lot of very smart people in the tradition who've done a lot of thinking about this and we might as well learn from them uh, and they will show us where these things have often been resolved. Mm-hmm. So for example, a lot of my students, you'll be unsurprised to know, they're wrestling all the time with election versus free will, right? This, this drives them crazy. Yeah. Um, they could just read Maximus and they could just read Barts 22 and its sorted out. It's done. You know, when did Bart write 2-2? Was it 1942? Why not point them there and say, look, these very, very gifted people have actually got insights into this. And you can rest assured and get on with the stuff that really matters, which is bringing Jesus's presence and relationality into the places where God has
3: placed you. That's wonderful. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know how how I would have ever made sense of the doctor i mean i was made to read bart early on and then maximus a little bit <laughs> later and so i thought i was so happy when that's where you went because it just made sense to me i was able to track right along with you in the book it's it it is interesting that like that question in the west especially is just so huge and such a struggle for us all that we have to work through it and yet we have these gems laying around right good good well thank you yeah which is hard for americans yeah
1: yeah well you've got to uh, stanley is terrific on this too you do have to break break down the liberal account of freedom, and and and, and Bentley Hart is terrific on this as well. You, you you really have to get into that and knock it on the head. Um, it's in our bones to be liberal, you know, and that that is a that is a tough learning process. Um, and I I I go after this in stages. In the book. So back into part one and then into part two and part three into part two and several chapters there. And I'm I'm really strongly Mm -hmm. committed to this. And I think we need to think about our agency much, much in a much more grounded way in terms of our bodies and our interpersonal formation. We need to think about it in terms of the second personal and how we're shaped by our relationships from the get go. Mm -hmm. We're gifted our freedom. By the agency that our primary caregivers teach us to exercise. It's intrinsically responsive, uh, it's intrinsically relational. And I think this will help us if we can get hold of that. It's one of the small objectives that the book is seeking to accomplish a, a thorough reconstruction of our liberal account of agency. Oh, <laughs> and then it moves on.
3: I notice you don't have a chapter with that title, though. <laughs> I it's, like how you're sneaking it in
1: there. Yes. There you go. No, you're exactly right. It is It is literally sneaked in <laughs> by degrees uh, when when we need to get into it. Yeah, yeah, well spotted.
0: Well, that sort of mats the second half of his question. And maybe you've already answered this. But So you, you wrote the book really as a textbook for your own students. I did. But it certainly is. It's very accessible, I would think. Well, they need something accessible. (laughs) Uh, um, And what I was finding
1: was the way I was writing before wasn't. So maybe a shout-out to Tom Wright here. I'm not always heard to be um, on the same side as him, but I think he has really shown us that you have to communicate better as a New Testament scholar. With people so they can understand you and you have to work at this so he's he's not just gifted he's worked incredibly hard to become a person who can communicate complex ideas deftly and i really wish that more people were taking a leaf out of his book mm-hmm. and so in a way he's he's a bit of a model for me in terms of communicating trying to communicate as clearly as i can
0: yeah no you're clearly crossing that bridge it's hard
1: work communicating clearly
0: Oh, no, you're communicating. <laughs> it's hard work. And I, it, it may, I, you know, I may have misunderstood that I just thought, well, this is a sort of an American phenomena or uh, the U.S., that we tend to, to not do what you're doing. That is, you do find it in Britain that you have academics writing books at a kind of popular level. Here, theologians don't tend to talk to anybody but each other. And it seems like, to me, with this book, you're crossing that bridge. Yeah, I I don't know if the UK does it much. Tom does, but I don't know. He's fairly unique. I, I think a previous
1: generation was much more interested in a sort of a C.S. Lewis. We, we don't have that sort of figure so much now. We have a lot of would-be C.S. Lewis's. Um, but to actually have the combination in one mm-hmm. space of someone who's quite a good scholar and also quite a good communicator—that's pretty rare, mm-hmm. and, and rarer than it should be. I mean, Christian scholars live to serve the church ultimately, not the university, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, we just yeah. lose sight of that.
0: Well, let me <laughs> let me raise the the another question, and this is mm-hmm. this may be a bit of review, but I think it may be helpful to set you in the work that you're doing in Pauline dogmatics, maybe in Mm -hmm. things that you've done prior. And that is that you're uh, talking about Pauline theology primarily not around the usual justification, but with the focus on resurrection, and maybe even on election. Uh, And election, of course, here already means something quite different so what caused you to shape it in that way
1: well in, in my defense before I become polemical there is this tradition this minority tradition in the modern period goes right back into the 19th century of arguing that the heart of Paul's gospel is really this idea that we're in Christ and that the way to understand that is in terms of some is to use Jewish categories in terms of eschatology and say there's some sense in which we're being resurrected. He is resurrected. He's living in a new state. And we're being drawn into that by the spirit as enacted by baptism. So this is a minority position, but it's there. It's always been there. Uh, Schweitzer, key progenitor. um, And it's there because that's what he thought. That really was his gospel. And 90% of what he says is couched in these terms. And the front end of the process of incorporation into Christ is God's initiative to do that, whereby he adopts you and reaches out to you because he loves you, loves us. Uh, so election properly understood, I think it's Bart understood it as a loving election. And Bart is informed by, Roman, uh, by Ephesians and Romans here. Uh, is the right way to think about a God who intervenes into our situation to save us and liberate us and transform us through the resurrection. So this is all pretty Jewish stuff. Um, Unfortunately, my my hypothesis would be that the interpretation of Paul has been kind of hijacked by what I think is just a misreading of about 10% of his texts. And these are read in terms of justification. They're read the way that kind of a Melanchthon reads them, and they're also deployed the way Melanchthon deploys them. So he deploys them up front, so they control and frame everything that comes after. This creates a very, very difficult interpretive situation. Now, that reading has strengths. It has a pedigree. uh, But I think we've learned in the 20th century, those strengths have been purchased at a terrible price. And we need to just own the fact that our denominational identities may need to shift a little bit our perception of our denominational identities. We need to repent of the damage that we've endorsed. And I I would argue we just need to clean it out. I don't think it should be there at all. Um, Yeah, it's hard to convince somebody of the truth of something when their job depends on them. Not getting what you're talking about, right? As Upton Sinclair <laughs> famously. But but my position would be that justification as a doctrine is just not there. It's just wrong. So it's right. a misreading. Right.
0: Um,
1: that's that's controversial. Doesn't mean it's wrong. Um, it is controversial. Not a lot of people are going to buy that. They're going to kind of use the crazy response. They're going to say, oh, you know, Campbell's just insane. Um, but you know, this there's, there's there's 1,300 pages of evidence an argument, and Paul got called insane at crucial moment.
0: So I'm in good company. Yeah, you, you just, if people are going to follow uh, this notion, mm-hmm. the, probably a good portion of them have just lost their job. It's a shame, isn't it?
1: You lose <laughs> your job for saying God loves you. Yeah, yeah, and taking that seriously. God loves yeah. you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Full stop, period. Just stop there. That's the gospel, right? It's like, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it
3: turns out the gospel is good news. <laughs> yeah, there you go.
1: Exactly. I wrote that line today. This really is good news.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. Bad news with a little bit of good news that's so
0: dominated by the bad news that it's really bad news.
1: <laughs> that's the gospel. Yeah, it's dangerous right. stuff,
0: as you've probably heard on our on our podcast, that we've all suffered yeah. um, uh, From from saying God loves you. Right. Uh, right and right. Uh, following up with that. Well, I was
2: just going to say, I, have, I can't tell you how many people who have told me, you know, I know God is love, but... But! God
0: God.
1: Yeah, Jesus but. Jesus but theology. Yeah. Yeah, I, I talk about this in the book. Uh, I, actually, I'm a little more polite. Uh, it's Jesus and theology, I okay. call it. Yeah. As <laughs> yeah. soon as but. it's got the end, Jesus is not Lord. You can, <laughs> you can come back with that line. Oh, so Jesus isn't Lord for you. I hadn't realized.
3: Okay. <laughs> Yeah, you know, actually, this this that flows into um, my next question really well because, so I, interestingly enough, in other conversations with people, you know, they're asking me, well, what does he mean by apocalyptic? What does he mean by foundationalism? And I have to admit, because I I haven't really read widely in New Testament scholarship, I realize they're talking about the way these words have been employed specifically, uh, and I just don't have a good answer. So my question is, you know, you argue for an apocalyptic understanding of Jesus' relation to the world and against foundationalism, but you're making appeals to historic Christian creeds and definitions such as the Chalcedonian definition. So how does your apocalyptic picture of Christ still allow us to make use of historic Christian doctrines that are assuming foundational categories from Greek philosophy, uh, like Chalcedon? How is, how is that different than Jesus and or Jesus but philosophy?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm going to resist the last little bit there that you said there are foundational categories in Greek philosophy, because I don't think that's actually correct. Um, Greek terminology, metaphors, concepts, and so on and so forth. But I, I think, yeah, I'm kind of with T.F. Torrance on this. I think he he feels that these have been thoroughly reworked in the light of what the church is experiencing. Um, and it's there's a pretty simple move here, which is that... Uh, Jesus is in control of the revelation of Jesus. God is in control of that, kind of breaks into our life. And the Holy Spirit, of course, is gathering us into that and and, and witnessing to the truth. Um, So what we're involved with is a Trinitarian process together, here and now, uh, which we affirm. And then we can see, oh, my gosh, you know, the church has been saying this all along. We are witnessing to this and we are joining our voice to the witnesses that have gone before us. And the creeds are just a nice little summary mm-hmm. of these key truths. Um, so the reason why we ratify the, tru- uh, the creeds is not because they're the creeds. We ratify them because Jesus has disclosed the fullness of God to us by virtue of the Holy Spirit in a living way, right where we are mm-hmm. now. And the creeds make sense of that. Um, so they're not autonomous. It's always God that's doing the work, and it's the pressure that's coming from God that's doing the work. Um So, I'm quite happy to gather those creeds in. Having said that, uh, Paul is on the very front end of this. What I like to say in the book is um, God is a Trinity, but Paul doesn't always have the categories for talking about that precisely. Mm. It is the case that God is triune and is acting on his life. So, we can detect this kind of proto Trinitarianism and what he's doing. And the creeds later on will give further definition. To that, Um, So I talk about amplifying these sorts of situations in Paul, where the church later on drilled more deeply into what was going on and gave further articulation to that. And I think it's important for us to recognize where those places are and and to build on them, um, which is one of the things I'm trying to do. Where do we build on what Paul's saying and where do we turn around and say, hey, this little bit's not helpful, not fully congruent? Uh, so we need to figure out how to read that in a way that's constructive. That that's a big part of what I'm trying to do. I, I think I've segued away from your question a little bit. No, that's good. Have that's I good. have I answered it?
3: Yeah. No. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, you did. So, um, no, I appreciate that. So it is a different, and um, I mean, it's it opens up more questions. Like just in my own mind, it's like. Uh, Because I I agree, like I loved this part of your book, the first part, right, where you're outlining a type of foundationalism that, uh, for example, you could quote the Sermon on the Mount, but somebody would say, oh, well, that's all good, but we live in the real world and sometimes you have to do violence to people. And I think you're shutting that down, that sort of logic down in a very upfront and helpful way.
1: Well, just a, a word on the foundationalism move. New Testament scholars don't know anything about this word either. Oh, okay. Um, it's, a, it's like a it's a torrent word, and it's, it's a technical term for us. And what it means is drawing on a text like First Corinthians mm-hmm. three. It denotes people who are building the basis for their own claims about God, mm-hmm. building those for themselves. Yeah, the questing
3: um, as you use it in the book.
1: Yeah, questing. You know, deriving it, thinking it through, emoting it, mystically experiencing it. Doesn't matter if you're making this stuff. If you're building that foundation for yourself. That's a really bad idea because mm-hmm. God has gifted us with the foundation. It's not of our own making. Uh, so let's just hold on to that and not wander off mm-hmm. and go, oh, you know, I, I know. Thanks so much, God, for showing up and Jesus. Really appreciate it. I know it involved a lot of effort and all that. But, you know, I just have this alternative <laughs> point of view that I want to try out for a bit about you. Yeah, don't
3: do it. I mean, it might have been helpful if one of the apostles would have said, like, Jesus is our cornerstone, the foundation. Or something like that. <laughs> there you go. And
1: it's not our construction of Jesus either. That's right. It's, it's a construction that's always under pressure from Jesus himself.
3: Oh, thanks. No, That's good.
1: I'm glad you agree. Yeah, we're, we're both kind of <laughs> building on the creeds here in a, in a helpful way.
0: Let me slip, this is actually John's point that we we were talking prior. And, you know, if you had to, in regard to foundationalism, that maybe just when you're talking about sin, well, that's what foundationalism is.
1: Can be. Yeah, it can be. If you come up with a construction of sin, that's too precise, you will enact or activate foundationalism, and sin is constantly drawing you to foundationalism the bible calls this idolatry so it's a it's a long long problem for people god self-discloses and people go yeah nah, not so much and go off and do something for themselves so is that
0: am i catching what you were suggesting paul yeah i was very fascinated i'm kind of jumping ahead but i'll i'll back up here but and that is that you know in in your engagement with culture in other words, maybe what you're doing with foundationalism plays over into your bit on navigation. That certainly we want to take take up the cultural aspects. Oh yeah. But it can't be foundational.
1: Yeah, it's it's when you're exactly right. And this is this is a connection in the book that I really hope people grasp. Because when we're building our own foundations, there's usually a self-ratification going on of some aspect of our culture or our politics or identity that we're particularly proud of. And if we then go on to evangelize people and convert them, we will impose our self-ratification on them. And we will erase what this people has in its place. So we'll we'll engage in an unnecessarily coercive and colonial um, enactment of the gospel. We don't want to do that. We, we We want to have our own culture in the right place. So it's important, but it isn't something we need to universalize. Uh, we can do it, but it doesn't mean that I have to make everybody do it. Uh, I don't have to make everybody like me. Um, and this is this is such a critical thing to get a hold of. Paul is incredibly sensitive to the, the fact that people do things differently from him. And he gives us a way of navigating into our situation so we don't have to arrive and tell people to do all these things necessarily. Uh, we've got a very subtle and flexible way of teaching them to address sin uh, that also allows them to retain a lot of the things that they do that are, that are, that are fine and that God probably delights in. God loves diversity. God loves variations. Um, and the church should be Um this is I I apologize for this sappy cliche, but the church should be a garden in which a thousand flowers bloom. Not one in which the rosebush goes out and plucks everything else up and says you gotta (laughs) damn well be like me.
3: And we've tried both ways. Yeah, (laughs) we we have. Maybe we haven't tried the, the first option well enough.
1: It's not a free for all. Yeah. Um there's still a lot of there's still a lot of things that need to be said about sin. But as Paul was saying, unless you've, got your, unless you've got the kind of trinity absolutely firmly in, in view as your controlling criterion as well as the controlling presence, mm-hmm. um, you're going to sneak stuff in there that then damages people. And Paul learned this ironically and somewhat tragically from kind of Jewish colonizing missionaries. So he, he learned this lesson where people were coming through and saying, okay, all these pagan, happy pagan converts, they need to take on board all the stuff that's, that's Jewish. He resisted yeah. that very, very strongly. Yeah. And we've misappropriated those passages, and instead of reading them as a lesson in missionary colonialism within the church, we read them as an attack on Jews.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That's, that's been a big, a big mistake. Which
2: is maybe kind of a nice segue uh, into our next question about uh, you know you make the claim that communion is the goal of the of the cosmos right which is great that it's. God's intention for all things and uh, in our last podcast before we had you on we were doing we were talking about theosis you know a salvation that is uh, God freeing us from sin and uniting him uh, with himself but if 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 the if communion is the goal of the cosmos and God's intention for all things and uh, we were kind of having our discussion in the context of David Bentley Hart's book you know that all uh, shall be saved uh, we, we couldn't resist asking you uh, in your reading of Paul what do you think about universalism
1: Yeah, well, I certainly get into this pretty explicitly, and here's my move. (laughs) Uh, I think that the basic building blocks of Paul's theology in relation to his Christology, especially, um, lead fairly directly to universalism. And I think that Paul himself was not a universalist. Okay? Okay. So I, I say he's an implicit universalist. Uh, he's not an explicit universalist, but I argue that when he's, when he's, not, when he's pushing back on universalism, he's an annihilationist. That the annihilationist moves are actually a little bit inconsistent with um, what he's saying in his best place, where he's pushing for the kind of universal significance of Christ. And then uh, I make a couple of other moves that are even kind of funkier. And that is I lay out the universal case. I show where Paul signs off on kind of the key axioms. I show where there are a couple of the kind of key objections. This is nowhere near the sophistication of DBH's book, but, but it's, it's sort of doing the same thing. And then I show where Paul actually makes specific arguments sometimes that attack the objections. <laughs> so he himself gives you material for attacking the objections mm-hmm. To universalism. So the mm-hmm. case is not just implicit versus explicit. He's actually doing work um, on our behalf. And my final, my final triumphant point is: yeah. if Paul really thinks all Israel will be saved, and this is recalcitrant, disobedient, hostile Jewish people, the majority of whom are rejecting the Son of God walking in their midst, Paul nevertheless believes that God will overcome that. Uh, that grace will triumph. Over human recalcitrance, and all, all Israel will be saved. That's Israel of the flesh being saved. Mm-hmm. Um, there's absolutely no good theological reason in Paul, or any good theological reason in general, from withholding exactly that narrative from humanity. All in Adam will be saved. Yeah, yeah,
3: okay. that's good. And I, I think uh, you know, because you're, we were just talking about your moves with freedom. That's just ultimately consistent. Once you take on the sort of freedom that yeah. Paul's talking about, um, I also think you know. I remember the first time I really thought, "Oh, I'm a universalist," was actually reading. Is it uh, Bart's Dogmatics two one or two two? That's the election passage where it just seems like he's a universalist, even though I know he doesn't. Yeah. He, he won't take that on. <laughs> not not
1: at that point in his life. Yeah. I think, and this is controversial, but I think probably by about the mid fifties. He, he was really there oh that's wonderful that's I, good I, to think, know. I think it's i think it's really the final part of the dogmatics mm. once you start to get the fourth three and you wrote the humanity of god have you read the humanity I've, yeah book? i've got that book i love it check uh, it out check it out yeah check it out, yeah, check it out. it'll blow it'll yeah. blow your doors off <laughs> 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 it's awesome well, that's
0: which wonderful. kind of the, the what you are saying and really, doing throughout the work, you're, you're using a Boltmannian category. Uh, I'm not even sure of the German pronunciation. Sachkritik. Sachkritik. And yeah. so, what you've just done, I think, is a bit of that. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> how would you distinguish and uh, what you're doing from Boltman?
1: Yeah, but and Boltman had an interesting exchange over over justice question. Uh, they had a they exchanged letters and but wrote a letter to Bultmann and said, you know, Sakritique is great. Uh, you're exactly right. We must expound the scriptures in terms of the Zaka. Uh, the problem is your Zaka is entirely wrong. You have derived your Zaka, Herr Bultmann, from yourself and from humanity. And the Zaka of the scriptures is Jesus Christ. So I had no problem with the method, but you just got the subject wrong. And... People get a little mulled up by this, but it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> this is exactly what most people do anyway. Let's be explicit about it. The Zaka of the scriptures is the disclosure mm-hmm. and attestation of the God revealed in Jesus Christ and through the Spirit. That's what they're for. Mm-hmm. They're not there to point to themselves. They're there to help us go deeper into Jesus. So, of course, we would interpret mm-hmm. them in terms of the zakah. Mm-hmm. And I hope that we do this in our preaching and teaching. And I, I think we need to do it uh, historically, we can go back and say, and say the Zucker and Paul is obviously Jesus and what he's doing. Where is the Zucker really being pushed through? Mm-hmm. And where is he, to a certain extent, like all of us, a captive of his cultural blind spots? I mean, the guy lived a long time ago. We can, we can kind of do that work now in a respectful mm-hmm. way. And uh, I think we know, people say, well, you know, how do you know what the Zaka and Paul is? And it's like, well, it's, it's God revealed in Christ. Like, it's not rocket science. But mm-hmm. if you want a little bit more on that, the Zaka where, where Paul is actually spilling out the ethical implications of that is when he's doing his work amongst the pagans and including them in this radical, kind of uh, flexible way. That's where, that's his signature issue. Mm-hmm. The signature issue for Paul is the pagan mission. So I think we're justified on purely historical grounds, saying that the zakah for Paul was obviously there is no Jew nor Greek slave or free male and female you are all one and the same in Christ Jesus.
3: You know it's interesting. Yeah. We had a te- Paul didn't hear this because he dropped out at the very beginning. Matt and I were talking, uh, but we we thought, and I would like to hear your opinion on this. That you know perhaps that's how Paul's reading Israel's scriptures, the Old Testament. Um, it seems like oh totally yeah. Yeah, (laughs) he says that. He says that, yeah.
1: Every promise that we receive is yes in Jesus Mm -hmm. Christ. Yeah, no, absolutely. He's reading the scriptures because he knows where the scriptures are all going, and they're going to a climactic story of death and resurrection in Jesus. The Messiah will be crucified. He'll be buried. He'll be resurrected. He'll be enthroned at the right hand of God as Lord. And this hope of resurrection is what Abraham was being promised way, Mm -hmm. way back. Land and offspring, part of the age to come. And as Abraham, he is being promised also the inclusion of the Gentiles. And you read everything in terms of this this election of Israel to be the people that bears the Son of God, God in their midst, and then to gather everybody in. Yeah, yeah. That, that, I think that's exactly what's going on. You're right.
3: Now, that's good news.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is good news. That's right. Yeah, that is. Very- I mean, what's yeah. the problem? Why fight it? Mm-hmm. Just get with the program, right?
3: Yeah, that's right. That's
1: right.
0: Maybe yeah. a, a way of kind of demonstrating how you do this. You know, take the let's take the you know the household code. Yeah, right. Um, uh, can you give us an example how you would imply this interpretive method?
1: Yes, yeah, so they're tricky because in the household codes you've got this. Um, fairly standard ancient approach to organizing the household in terms of uh, wives obeying husbands, children obeying parents, slaves obeying masters and mistresses, and so on. Now, Paul's Christology, when you drill down into it, is not doing the work that it should be in relation to those relationships. It's doing a little bit of work, um, he's calling the dominant people in those relationships to accountability, to much higher degree of compassion and engagement, which was, that was countercultural. So it's worth hanging on to that. Sometimes you're in a missionary situation where you can't just abolish things. You can't go in and say, these patriarchal arrangements just have to go now in the name of the gospel. You can't do that. You have to navigate into them subtly and carefully and sensitively. And so it is sometimes a good thing to be able to say to dominant people, people with power, hey, act like Jesus, be compassionate. This is a good thing to say, but it's not the end of the story. And so what I would do, to cut a long story short, uh, is I would deploy the reading resources of the church, uh, where scripture is read in lots of different ways, and empowered by the Spirit and impressed with Christ, if you need to, read these texts in a way that is constructive for your people. And all of us at some time need to be exhorted to submit and respond and obey to people who are mediating Jesus to us. Mm -hmm. And all of us at some time need to be encouraged to lovingly act like Christ towards those whom we have some sort of power or some sort of influence over. So I would take both instructions, both those kind of relationships and instructions within them, and I would apply them to everyone. I would wrap them all in the humanity of everyone. Um, that would be a, that would be a sort of an example of how we could move. Um, Paul, I think what have I got? Sixteen different approaches to those texts gamed out in one of the later chapters and. About 13 of them suck, but um, some of them are okay. We, we end up with some good ones. <laughs> yeah, that, that's where I show how we can use Scripture in a constructive, theologically disciplined way.
0: You could take the same principle. In other words, your hermeneutic or your interpretive understanding that you're using to uh, interpret Scripture, but then can you take that and say, and this is the interpretive frame, that we apply to culture and simply to the human situation.
1: There's, yeah, there's an element of truth in that. The, the hermeneutical frame that I want us to apply to culture is I want, to, I want us to learn to think about culture in terms of a structure-relationality distinction, which is just a fancy way of talking about the impress of eschatology and the impress of the Trinity. So w- what I'm arguing, I'm making a very strong move, strong as an overt. I, I hope it's also robust. Uh, where I'm arguing that the Trinity unpacks into relationality, people unpack into relationality. This is what really matters. Our interpersonal relationality is something that God is very, very heavily invested in. This is what matters. And the the question of how that relationality is freighted, the vehicles which are carrying it, our bodies, our structures, our cultural patterns, this is secondary to the relationality. So we always ask ourselves in any situation, how is what's going on here helping and enhancing our relationality? Are we being drawn into the loving covenantal relationships of the Trinity or is something impeding that or getting in the way of it? And so we can adjust our recommendations accordingly. And, and that gives us a pretty flexible but also a highly ethical Way of engaging with culture. Is this this is a very compact summary of quite an extensive discussion. <laughs> but is it is it resonating? Do you, are you getting a feel for mm-hmm. for where I'm going? So, for example, Paul arrives in a pagan context. He's a good old-fashioned Jew. When he eats meat with blood and it, he feels like vomiting, and the, the spirit goes, "Hey, this is okay. These guys can eat pork. It's okay. It's just a structure. What I want you to worry about is." How are they eating it together? How is this working for them? Is it helping them to love one another or getting in the way of that? It's it's okay for people who are converted in the South to eat Cajun food. You don't have to abandon that and start eating um, food that's been prepared in the Jewish way. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of navigation that Paul is doing and that we are called to do, I think, all the time. It's very freeing. It's a lovely, flexible freeing ethic because it's 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 flexible it's creative but it's not a free for all it, it kind of gets at the things that really
3: matter i think
0: Oh absolutely yeah that's helpful i'll i'll uh, I'll save more for that on the last question so
3: trying to stoke up pure controversy <laughs> <It's a> of conver- <laughs> conversations that, yeah. yeah that's we right having, we have. Having- We haven't had enough. Yeah, we've we've, we've dissed the
1: Lutherans. We've we've kind of planted our flag in universalism. Do you think anybody is going to be listening to this
3: after this point, apart from us? Well, I know (laughs) no Episcopalians listen, but even if they did, they wouldn't care anyway. Long, long (laughs) gone, yeah. Um, Thank
2: you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org donate.